Hello and welcome to the Bottom Up Podcast. This is episode four. I'm your co-host, Mike Parsons. And as always, I'm joined by the man with a plan himself, Mr. Chad Owen. Here we are at the profit-focused WeWork case study show, Mike. And we're going to talk all the numbers, big and small, negative and positive, the ups and the downs. I'm real excited to pick apart why I think WeWork failed ultimately. And that that was really just a lack of fundamentals in their profit aspect and when it comes to breaking down businesses in the four P's. Totally. It's such a powerful lesson. And I know if you've been tuning into the earlier episodes, we've had a lot of positive things to say about WeWork, despite what everyone's saying these days. The truth really is they did build a good culture. They did build a great product. It did disrupt a category. They really did a thing there. But the truth is, when we look at the numbers, there's like a huge distraction in the numbers, and that is the ridiculous growth of this company. Let me put it into perspective for you. So we've got a slide on our case study that you can get at bottomup.io, and this is it. In 2015, they had 40,000 members at WeWork. By 2019, they had over 400,000. So it's like a 10x increase in a very short time. That is one steep line of growth as the same thing with their locations from over 50 to over 500. And year on year from 16, 17 to 18, they enjoyed 100% growth in their revenues each year. Now, any company that can grow 10% a year is happy on the top line. These guys were growing 100%. So you did a million on year one, you do a 2 million on year two. That is so, so off the charts. It's really tremendous growth. And that's when you've got a great product and you've got great promotion. These things do tend to work out, don't they? Yeah. WeWork opened half of all of their total locations in the last 10 months, they were opening four or five locations a week across the globe. That is how quickly they're growing. Imagine having to open up, you know, 100,000 or 200,000 square feet of office space, fully staffed and furnished and built out, not every week or every month, but every single day. Yeah, the growth is mind boggling. Yeah. And to put that in perspective, you know, when you've been in the office and someone says, let's change the office or let's move to a different floor. This is a massive like undertaking, just something we can relate to. So when you think about the build out of a new place, the utilities, the furniture, health and safety, all the facilities, employing the staff, getting all the fobs to work, like the amount of things that can go wrong on a new office build is incredible. But somehow they grew like crazy. And as I said earlier, total distraction because in a culture where everyone was looking for hyper growth companies, investments came quick and fast to WeWork. However, there was already a publicly listed company that we compare in this case study. It's called IWG. And many of you might know this largely from uh, a brand they have in market called Regis, who technically were in market quite a time before WeWork. But the crazy thing is that they had a business similar to WeWork. They weren't promising to be a tech company. Many of their fundamentals were actually significantly better 
They turned a profit. How novel. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, should we start with they actually made some money? But they did really smart things, Chad. They had what we call recession clauses in their leases. So if their property experiences recession, then they are actually able to renegotiate their lease down. Now, which competitor of theirs not only took leases at the top of the market, but did not include any recession clauses. Can you name to me which company? It starts with W and ends in work. And this is the problem, right? There's an interesting uh, chart you know, that just shows the fundamentals of both of the businesses. And the biggest ones that stand out to me is they have similar square footage. They have a similar number of workstations. But the biggest two differences is WeWork has lost billions of dollars and IWG has made some money. But this valuation of WeWork at the time was $47 billion and IWG was just shy of four. So WeWork was getting tech company like, you know, price to earnings valuations that a, a, a tried and true hospitality real estate company just could never get. So going back to this promotion, the previous episode, you know, WeWork was definitely selling themselves as a new kind of company, a new tech focused company so that they wouldn't be put in the same category as a company like IWG that actually has sound business fundamentals. Yeah. So this is what I talk about the distraction. So the growth of WeWork distracted everybody. And once they actually filed their S1 and people could see the real numbers, things just simply didn't add up. And what's interesting about this is it really challenges us to find the rigor to go deeper than just like, are we growing? Or I can imagine a lot of startups are like, do we have a bunch of customers? How many new customers did we get? Because those are good questions. But I think what WeWork illustrates is a far bigger learning. And in order to get into that, Chad, I want to share with you what I think the big problem with WeWork was. Are you ready? All right, here we go. Here we go. So what's really interesting in the S1 filing, if you look at the revenues of WeWork between 2017 and 2018, they went up $1 billion. So any company that can sit there and say, hey, our revenue is up $1 billion year on year, you're like, awesome, right? Party time. Or as in Adam Newman's case, bring on the tequila. Now, what is really interesting is if you look at their cost structure and cost base at the same time, I think we can uncover the real problem. So in the same period that the business grew by a billion, they actually increased their losses by a billion. So what this means, Chad, is if you get a billion dollars in growth, is it costs you a billion dollars to get, therefore... What was the point? They had negative margins. Like, how crazy is that? For every dollar they make, they spend two. So you have negative 100% margins. It's not a business. That's a money pit. It's one of those situations, Chad, where like you see this top line of growth. But if you actually have the capacity to go rigorously, almost forensically, it brings you to this big idea. I think this is the biggest learning, not only for this episode, but 
of all the four episodes that we're doing on WeWork, I think this is where it comes to. It's called customer acquisition cost, okay? It's a very simple formula, but the real truth here is that WeWork were totally preoccupied with the number of new customers, but they never address that through the lens of what are the total costs of our sales and marketing operation and how many customers do we get for that? Because if they had revealed to themselves and studied this number, like by the first half of 2019, they were almost at $3,000 as a cost to acquire their new customer, $3,000. But then if you actually ask, well, how much money do we make over the lifetime with this customer? You could have asked the question, is this worthwhile? And I can tell you that not only is this a classic thing that trips startups, it really catches them by surprise. They're like, oh my gosh, our search words are highly competitive or it takes much longer to close the deal with our customers or we have a leaky funnel where we're churning. The truth really is here that they could have asked themselves, what is the appropriate investment to be profitable? And look, they may have found that they can only afford $1,500 to acquire a customer, but they were close to $3,000. And then you could have addressed this by changing not only your advertising costs, but you would have looked at a sort of a full funnel approach. This customer acquisition cost was a number that they never acted upon and it cost them dearly. It only went up over time. Yes. And so the worst thing is, though, if we explore this as a number, if you've got increasing costs when it comes to acquiring your customer, you have to then increase the total lifetime value in order to protect your margin. Because let's say in this case, I I pick an arbitrary number. Let's say over the lifetime of a customer who stays on average, I don't know, two years, that you make $3,000 in profit. But if you've paid $3,000 to acquire them, then if that number is going up at a certain point, you're in the negative. So then you're forced to look at a bunch of tactics to improve your margin. Now, just quickly, the biggest thing, if you and I were sitting at WeWork right now, they have to do a couple of quick things. First of all, with their existing customer base, they've got to improve the cross-sell or the upsell. There's plenty of things that they could be offering. People like yourself, Chad, our office in New York is based out of that beautiful Docklands area. What's it referred to as? Brooklyn Navy Yard. The Brooklyn Navy Yard. So there's an opportunity. But Chad, if you were there and you were looking at at how you're going to reduce costs and radically improve your lifetime value of customers, what else comes to mind? Well, I would suspect that they have more money and sense and they have thought, well, everyone is our customer. So let's advertise and market to everyone. And how much does that cost? Well, billions and billions of dollars. So I would create some customer profiles and personas that are going to be much more targeted so that they can direct their ad spends and get the customers that they know are going to have not only a higher spend, but a longer you know, tenancy and a bigger lifetime value. Because I am going to be a very different customer than a corporate client like McKinsey that may move some of their, you know, thousands of employees into this space. So 
a small business owner versus uh, a larger enterprise, they're very different customers. Therefore, you should be spending your advertising dollars and your customer acquisition dollars much differently. Yeah, I think you make a really good point. Like we've talked about, you know, the cross sell and the upsell and existing customers. I think where you're going is like they should not only improve the funnel by better targeting, but also they might find new segments that they could specifically appeal to sort of widen the funnel. I think the last thought I have here is I don't think WeWork builds, gets better the more people that are using WeWork. Like if you think about Uber and Airbnb, they enjoy these great network effects. For Airbnb, the more hosts, the more guests. The more guests, the more hosts. And so the product gets better. It's always a funny thing at the moment. Like WeWork, the more people in your space, like at a certain point you're like, oh, I wish it wasn't as busy because you know, <laughs> I can't get a call booth, right? I think they've got to ask themselves like how do we provide more value to the chads of this world the more people that are in the space, Yeah. And I think this is actually my biggest criticism of the product uh, to bring it all the way back to our first episode. They sell community hard, but they don't follow through on it. And I don't see the network effects materialize. You know, they sell you on, Hey, you know, you're working with a bunch of cool creatives and you know, you're going to collaborate and bump into one another and work with one another. And that is not supported in any way, shape, or form by WeWork, the company. It's all dependent upon the individuals and the people and the companies unique to each location. And so I think you're absolutely right that that is a huge opportunity for them that they're promising and overselling, to be honest, but not to the ring upon. Exactly. Well, there you go, Chad. I mean, this is really a lesson on being a bit more rigorous on the numbers, isn't it? Yeah. And you know, to be clear, I think both you and I think that WeWork nailed it on the product side and did some pretty good things in the people and the promotion side. But when we, you know, had a chance to look under the hood and the public markets had a chance to look under the hood, we figured out that they were making too many financial sacrifices to make it a sustainable business. And so I think the WeWork that we're going to see six months or a year from now is going to be very different. I have high hopes that they stick around, but I see a follow-up episode in our future <laughs> here, Mike. Well, before we talk about that, you found this great study that's going to be our goodie, our little giveaway. Do you want to talk about that for a second? Yeah. So I think some people from the Harvard Business did a case study, Why We Work Won't. And what they do is just go through the S1 filing to shine you know, the sunshine on it and and poke all the holes in it. I think for those of you that really enjoy the kind of Harvard Business Financial Times sorts of breakdowns, it's a really great uh, breakdown on why the business fundamentals of WeWork don't work. And it's, again, a, a great elaboration on many of the points that we've talked about here on this show and, and many more. Fantastic. So that's a bit of a wrap up now for our case study on WeWork. I hope you have enjoyed our sort of quick short, sharp, compressed breakdown on product, people, promotion, profit. There's a ton of learning in it. Do you think we achieved a fairly balanced view, Chad, or did we beat them up a bit too much at the end? I think we've highlighted some good things that we can learn and take away from WeWork's successes, and we've learned about the caveats of their story as well. But if we haven't done a good job, please let us know. Yeah, you can go to podcast.bottomup.io 
and leave a message there for us. And you know, we'd love to not only hear your uh, thoughts about this show and things that we might have missed or not, but what other ideas, topics, companies, case studies, methodologies uh, that you would like to hear from us. The next one coming down the pike is all going to be based on our design thinking at Masterclass. Mike has a fantastic masterclass up on our learning platform, bottomup.io. But we're going to break it down into its components and share it with you here in short bite-sized chunks. We're really excited to share it with Chad, you. Chad, it's actually going to be 14 uh, different episodes of the show. So we break it down, make it really bite-sized. We're going to study Airbnb and how they do design thinking on the inside and on the outside. We're going to look at the complete tool set of you getting to a validated product that is really going to knock people's socks off. So stay tuned. Lots and lots of design thinking goodies coming your way, everyone. Yeah. And for everyone, I just wanted to say thank you for coming on this new podcast journey with Mike and myself. We're uh, very curious to get your thoughts. Don't forget to check us out leave us a review on iTunes. Uh, that helps other people discover the show. And you can go to podcast.bottomup.io to get all the show notes, previous episodes, future scheduled episodes, and all of the goodies there as well. Woohoo! Well, Chad, that is WeWork done and dusted, and I cannot wait to dive into a world of design thinking. Thanks to you and to all our listeners. That's a wrap of the Bottom Up Podcast. 